more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It's just after 7 p.m., and you are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler. And I'm Brian Lynn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blogs at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Nolan Newman from the College of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Nolan. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm a huge fan of the show, so good to be here in person, finally. Awesome. I get so excited when we have people on the show who have actually listened to the show before. (laughs) (laughs) So... Let's let's get started with this week's episode because I feel like we have a lot of uh, a lot of ground to cover here. So, Nolan, you're a computational biologist. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what that is? Yeah, of course. Uh, so, a computational biologist is essentially a biologist, like you would typically think of one, uh, just in a different way. So, typically, if you think about biologists or chemists or a lot of these other life science fields, you're usually thinking about people working in a lab. If it's biology, for example, you're thinking about people um, growing cells or treating mice with certain chemicals and certain reagents, and seeing how they respond. And as a computational biologist, I I am not doing those things directly, but I am working with those things. So other people are doing those things for me, for our lab, and then we're getting those results and we're analyzing them computationally to try to come up with some scientific gains in the field, to try to understand how certain things work in science. Yeah, so it sounds to me like there's people in the lab doing their lab stuff. They got the beakers, they got the mice, and then they collect all this data And they're like, shoot, you know what? I don't actually like data that much. I like (laughs) being in the lab and being with the mice. And so then they make that your problem. And you're like, sweet, I hate being in the lab. Mm -hmm. I will make the data (laughs) my problem and I'll make meaning of it. Is that about right? Yeah. (laughs) No, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I've done wet lab stuff in the past. I think we might get that to that later. But 
for right now, at where I currently am in my life, I really enjoy working on computers. So I really enjoy using computers to make sense of data. And so that's where being a computational biologist, or you might hear uh, people called the data scientist, um, that's what they do. They have all this data people generate, and they try to make sense of it, all these really tiny bits of pieces of information, but they have millions and millions of this information at once, and they're trying to understand what part of this information is important and which part they can not have to worry about so that their mind doesn't explode with all this information they get at once. And and this is definitely a bit of an undertaking because a lot of these these data sets are massive and, and highly complex. So you might have, you know, millions of genes that are sequenced or um, you know, thousands of microbes that are identified in a certain sample and you have to figure out what the relationship is between all of these different pieces of information. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And um, the way that you can go about that is, I mean, there's a multitude of different ways, but what we do specifically is we do what's called network biology. So we're looking specifically at how these things interact with one another, how these microbes influence the expression of this gene in your body, and really what we can do to change that expression of that gene, uh, and then in turn to to treat some sort of disease, for example. So someone who has type 2 diabetes, for example, they're going to have different genes and different microbes in their body than someone who does not have it. So our whole idea is going through the body and saying, okay, what genes and which microbes are important? And then why are they important? If we give someone a drug, why do some people respond Mm -hmm. to these drugs and other people don't? That's really the core of our lab. And that's how um, computational biology and pharmaceutical sciences kind of can be melded into one one thing is that we're really the the forefront of this operation that you see when you talk when you're thinking about a pharmacy. At the pharmacy is the end goal. That's where the the medication originally or eventually gets sent to. Mm. But us and then any, everyone else who's doing biological sciences usually it's or generally it's for the advancement of human health. At least for a lot of fields, it is. And so we're really the beginning of that. And then so on. You go to clinical trials, and then eventually you'll hopefully get that drug to to its end stage in the pharmacy itself. And am I am I correct in remembering that you and your lab just put out a paper about the um about how the gut microbiome influences uh efficacy of cancer treatment is that along the lines oh yeah okay that that is one one paper yes (laughs) that's um not not the one i thought you'd be familiar with but that we have published one (laughs) we published a few with cancer yeah okay Okay. so i just think that's fascinating and um maybe a lot of our listeners don't really think about how the gut microbiome might influence how your body might might respond to cancer treatment yeah oh definitely i mean um as as i'm sure a lot of people know uh, especially you, Grace, how the gut microbiome can do so many different things mm-hmm. for your body. You're, you're normally thinking about, okay, gut my or I, I eat this certain diet and I gain weight, for example, mm-hmm. and that's that's part of it. But why do you gain that weight? Why do you start responding these certain ways? Really, the whole the whole cusp of that is it all begins with the microbiome. Microbiome's looking or it's changing the type of food you eat. It's uh, changing into these different compounds, which have this downstream effect of increasing. Um, weight and so on and so on. And so it's kind of just a downward spiral from there. So really understanding the very first step of this process can be a huge step in the field if we're trying to treat a lot of these diseases. So you mentioned that you use like networks to do this. And when I think of networks, I immediately think of 
those marshmallow toothpick towers you build <laughs> in, I don't know what grade, or maybe you did it yesterday, but you know, these marshmallows with like different roads to other marshmallows and some of them have lots of connections and some have a couple connections. But then what I'm trying to wrap my head around is like, well, is the microbe the marshmallow or is the microbe the toothpick and is the weight gating the marshmallow or is that how big my structure is? So can you relate a little bit like how you use how the networks look in this context? Yeah, of course. And it's, as always, I mean, this is going to be a little bit more difficult to do without a picture in front of you. I believe yeah. on the blog post, we yeah. have a picture yeah. of a network. If you're tuning in, you're really curious what we're talking about exactly. Um, but essentially, in this network, in that example you just given, the nodes in your network, those are those little circles or triangles or squares, all these little yeah, kind of pins <laughs> or marshmallows in your yeah. example. Yeah. Um, those are going to be the microbiota and the genes and all these phenotypic parameters such as um, weight gain, um, insulin levels, cholesterol levels, etc. There's a bunch of different things you can measure. All of these are the kind of the output of this system that you're studying. So for example, in the wet labs, someone might have a mouse and they are giving two different uh, groups of mice. One, they're going to give a control diet with you know no added um, sugar or fat. And the other one, they give a high fat diet. And so at the end of this experiment, we get all the sequencing data, it gets sent to us, and then we build these networks out of it. So these networks consist of these different microbiota that are interacting with one another. Those are the nodes in the network or that um, marshmallow example you gave, but the genes can also be nodes or marshmallows. And then the toothpicks in that example would be the edges in the network. So these edges are correlations, meaning that if one microbe goes up, does another microbe go up as well? Does it increase when you have this certain diet? And if it does, if they both increase, then you have what's called a positive correlation. But we don't need to get too deep into that. But yeah, these these networks are what we call covariation networks. So it's really just an, a way of not only visualizing, but interpreting how things interact with one another so that we can eventually narrow it down to say, okay, we've found this one single microbe that's super interesting that we think if someone has this microbe, they're not going to get this disease. And we want to know why that is. So that's that's really the how um, our work happens. Okay. So it sounds like there's someone in a lab. They give you a bowl of Lucky Charms. You throw out all the cereal. You grab the marshmallows, the best part, and then you make connections with them. You're putting the toothpicks in and you're saying, you know what? This is what matters here. And these other pieces, who who needs them? Who eats them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. And another example that I like to give in my talks is if you think about it as like a big bowl of spaghetti. So if you think about the meatballs in the spaghetti as a node in the network and the noodles as edges, and if you go and get this bowl of spaghetti, let's say you're at the, for some reason you went, you're a poor college student. You went to the most expensive spaghetti Italian place in the world. And you really want to have the spaghetti, but you can't afford a whole plate. You can afford like maybe one or two bites of it. So you want to know what bite to take, which meatball is going to be best and which noodles are going to be the best. Because if you don't and you get, you know, something that you could have made on your stovetop at home, then you probably have just wasted hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's kind of how how these experiments, how much these experiments cost. So what we do is we narrow down which meatball and which um, spaghetti that you should take from that bowl so that you're not wasting your money. And interestingly, um, we can use this or use these predictions and we can test them experimentally. And we have 
plenty of data and plenty of results that have shown that these certain microbes and these certain genes that we find just by looking at our network and doing this fancy math that's involved with analyzing a network, that these specific microbes can, um, if you have them or don't have them in a mouse, then that completely determines how a mouse is going to respond. Or maybe not completely, but it has a very strong effect on how that mouse is going to respond. And same with the genes. We might see one, one gene or one meatball that looks really interesting. And then if we um, get rid of that meatball or we add that meatball, that completely uh, changes how that mouse responds or how you feel if you're eating that spaghetti. You might feel a lot better for having that meatball. You can think about it like that. So it seems like it's kind of some some back and forth. So maybe there's a massive experiment looking at mice that get this diet versus mice that don't get this diet. You identify some microbes that are interesting and then you go back to the wet lab people and you're like, okay, this microbe was found to be highly associated with, you know, whatever outcome. And so then the wet lab people might say, all right, we're going to feed this microbe to mice and see if we can, you know, con- confirm your predictions, basically, mm-hmm. that this that this is associated with this outcome, which is kind of the, the side of the lab that I'm on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> feeding feeding bacteria to mice. <laughs> right, right. Because I know I know a lot of your work has, has to do with autism, I believe, yeah. and the, the link between those. That's why I was mm-hmm. referring to you earlier in the, yeah. in the talk about and, how you might be familiar with some of that. <laughs> and our experiments are informed by a massive analysis of, of massive data sets. Right, right. <laughs> I said, this one's important. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just, just like you said, it, it's a constant back and forth um, thing going on. So we have half of our lab, or I'll, I couldn't say half, probably 90% of our lab is, is actually wet lab. And then the other 10%, which is me and a few other people in there, we sit at computers and we analyze that data. So all the wet lab people, they spend months on an experiment. They pull their hair out trying to understand <laughs> why something isn't working. And then they eventually get the data. They send it to me. And if, if my code doesn't work, I hit the backspace button a few <laughs> times. It's so much easier than trying to figure out why a cell isn't growing or why mice keep dying. So I'm very, very thankful, very fortunate. I really love the the computational side of things. But yeah, we'll we'll analyze that data and we'll go, wow, this thing looks interesting. You guys should really check into this and mm. see see what happens. And then um, they'll they'll, you know, do do the experiment. They'll get very basic results. They can usually analyze. Yeah, this this certain gene goes up like you predicted it to. That's great. And then if we have money and we can continue with the experiment, mm, then they'll yeah. go, okay, how about you guys look into this stuff? And if not, then we go and um, potentially publish the paper. It's always the end goal of experiments. <laughs> it really does become the million dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've been talking about networks in response to like microbes essentially, but there's tons of applications of networks, right? Mm-hmm. So one example might be cities connected by roads and planes for anyone that's played pandemic or was alive in the last two years. <laughs> Um, is aware of like how we care about maybe like one city that's a hotspot and we like have to pay attention to it. Right. So that's back to our one bite. Are you interested in using your like network analysis on those other applications? Are you just like really into these mice and microbes? (laughs) So it's, um, I, I'm really interested in, in it from the stance of biology specifically. I think it is incredibly important to use networks, especially for um, we have like economic networks and social networks and computer networks. Networks are incredibly important for all these things. But for biology specifically, I'm interested in the gut microbiome is as interesting as I think it is. And I, I do think it's interesting. Um, really, my... Um, I guess my my goal in life would be to better understand some other diseases um, or to understand how the microbiome influences those diseases specifically. So your... 
thesis work specifically, let's let's talk about that for a little bit mm-hmm. here, uh, centers on some of the um, statistical and mathematical factors that can influence networks or the outcome of networks. What are you looking for with this research? Yeah, oh, geez, that's a <laughs> that's a very loaded question. We're looking for a lot of things as you always are in science. Um, with with this specific work, though, I'd say one of the one of the most important things we're looking for is how to make the best network. Um, so. For those that may not be have a huge background in statistics, um, statistics is all about some some very fancy guy a long time ago that said this p-value threshold that you use of five percent is the absolute magic number. That's what you should be using for everything, and um, that was an arbitrary, well, somewhat arbitrary number on his part. So when you're actually creating these networks, you're using different statistical thresholds for different things, but your end goal is really to create a network that you can analyze. And that you can, um, you know, find these predictions and try to come up with these ideas that you can test experimentally. So if you use too strict of these thresholds, you really end up with a huge, huge bowl of spaghetti that there's no way you could ever find the one single meatball that you want in it. You would have way too much in there and you would have no way of knowing which one is best for your money. And if you use two, uh, or sorry, if you don't use strict enough thresholds, I think I might have said that backwards earlier, but if you use too strict of thresholds, then you're going to have not enough meatballs in there and you're probably going to get rid of the one that would have been really good. So you, you randomly chose one based off some statistics and your random guess was not that great. It You got an okay meatball, but it really wasn't perfect. And so... Our my whole thesis is really to go about and understand what sort of these thresholds do you need to set so that you can find that really good meatball and that you can get your money's worth for this project. And you want to be reasonably confident that what you're choosing is actually something meaningful rather than just and it is actually a real result um, is actually a real meatball, perhaps uh, made of real meat rather than a vegan meatball. Look, that looks like a real meatball. <laughs> I don't know if the sure. metaphor works here the for impossible uh, meat- confidence thresholds. <laughs> An impossible meatball. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- exactly. You are. You are really. You want to be sure of your results. You don't. Um, when we make these networks, we're not just you know randomly choosing thresholds. There is a lot of biology and math that goes behind that. Um, but at the same time, you have you have a bunch of different. Uh, properties of a network that you're really trying to understand and that you know have some meaning behind them. So you're really trying to um, get a network that has these good properties that you can really look for. So yeah, exactly. And what kind of properties are you looking for? Is it like the size of the meatball? Like your softball size meatball is way too big to eat, but you want something larger than marble or is it like the number of noodles the thickness of noodles the kind of noodles because i would imagine rice noodles would make really bad spaghetti (laughs) yeah i mean there's there is a a lot of things that can go into it that you can look for uh let's take your first example the the size of the meatball so you can look at how much a a microbe or a gene changes between two different states between the control and the treatment state if one changes a lot then you might be more interested in that than one that just changes a little bit Um, But if we're looking at the network as a whole, then some very specific properties that we have of that include uh, like the number of positive edges in the network to the number of negative edges, like the ratio of that. But really the, the end goal of creating these good networks is 
to have or to find these good um, parameters, these good microbes and genes, you have to have a good structured network. And then we can look into these node properties of the network. So we have two separate things, network and node properties. No, the network properties just like the overall idea of the network, how many nodes it has, how many edges it has, etc. Whereas these node properties are more like, um, if we think about it from a social network standpoint, which you'd brought up earlier, if you think about someone who has a ton of followers on Instagram or someone... Um, who is the president, for example, they're going to know or they're going to be connected in some way. They might not know people um, directly, but they're going to have followers that are going to get this information. So someone in, on Instagram that has three million subscribers, for example, if you know if you're an advertising company, you might say, OK, I want to send this ad to this person who specifically does um, work for like kids, I don't know, 12 and under. Then you say, oh, great. Well, what are kids 12 and under, under interested in? We'll send this ad to them that kind of focuses on kids 12 and under. So we're really looking for, if we were that person, we'd be looking for these influencers that have lots of connections to other people. So in a network, you're looking for nodes that have lots of connections to other nodes. That's one very key um, thing. And I'd say the other most important um node property. There's plenty of node properties, but the other most important one is is one that we call BIBC, which is really um, if you were looking at an, uh, two different, let's say cities, and maybe you guys have a better metaphor than me, but you're trying to to figure out how, how to best get from one city to the other by um, walking, let's say. So you could, you could take a long way around. It could take 10 hours or you could um, maybe go another way. We could take five hours or you could just go directly across this bridge that would take you 10 minutes to get from one city to the other. But if we got rid of that bridge, then that's going to completely, I guess, destroy your way of getting from one city to another reasonably, right? Nobody's going to want to walk five hours to go there. So you're looking at the shortest distance between two different things and then targeting the things that are on that shortest distance between them. So if we got rid of that bridge, you're there's no way you're going to want to walk that far i feel like you're talking about the game ticket to ride for anyone that's oh, yeah. playing yeah. that yeah, it, where it you're trying to make to a path between these two cities and then someone comes in i guess it's your uh significance your threshold significance that you know blocks your path and you're like oh shoot now i need new cards i gotta go this other way and then someone blocks that path and it's like okay great Maybe yeah i need to yeah. make a tunnel yeah and that's that's exactly <laughs> right i mean you brought statistics into that perfectly if if you have too strict of a threshold you're gonna destroy that node and then how are you gonna how are you supposed to get between these two places you've destroyed that bridge that was connecting those two so then you have to go the long way around so then just that really tiny great example you can see how uh, just a very small change in statistical threshold let's say um one percent uh, this this will be this will be meaningful to people that know statistics um <laughs> so <laughs> let's say you have uh, a number that's point zero 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 five. okay really small number and you use a threshold of that but you could have used a threshold of point zero 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 six, like just barely one like one times ten to the negative fifth greater and then your your node would have been there but because you chose a very, very minutely small different number, that node disappeared. And so then therefore you completely change how you how you analyze your network. So that's why it's so critical of us to understand what makes a good network so that we're not constantly getting rid of these things that may or may not have been really important just because of a very small change we made to these thresholds. 
Every time I, I talk about and, and kind of hear and learn more about statistics, the more I second guess all of my own data analysis. And then I'm like, you know, it's just we, it's all kind of made up. Yeah, it's, it's all just a number that some famous guy said, I choose that one. Everyone said, great, we, we agree. And it's been like that for a long time and we'll <laughs> nothing's <forever>. changed. <laughs> If you're just now tuning in, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR, and we're talking with Nolan Newman about networks, spaghetti, computational biology. If you're a little hungry, then... uh, (laughs) You're going to get hungrier. You're going to get hungrier. (laughs) This is making me want spaghetti. Definitely. (laughs) And uh, you're talking about, you know, being connected to lots of nodes, and this just reminds me of the seven degrees to Kevin Bacon, right? And like, I think that only works to your point because he is well-connected and he has so many, I'm assuming he knows a lot of people and someone trying to play seven degrees to Brian Lynn from like Oklahoma (laughs) probably won't succeed. (laughs) This is my guess. Yeah, yep. (laughs) Does anyone know how many degrees from Kevin Bacon they are? I don't, do you? I'm four. Whoa! Uh, I'm I'm at least five. (laughs) There you go. Incredible. Uh, so switching gears a little bit here, we've been talking a lot about your work. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what got you into this field. Um, was it Kevin Bacon? It wasn't Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kevin Bacon's really how I determine my life choices. I, As I, one should. Yeah. What, what would Kevin Bacon do? That's really like the, the key term that I go off of, the key saying that, that I like to uh, determine my life, yeah. <laughs> Kevin Bacon moonlights as a computational biologist. <laughs> <laughs> now you know. But yeah, so, so what 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 kind of got you interested in this? And and tell us a little bit about your story to getting to grad school. Sure, yeah. I mean, my my story. I don't know if there's a traditional story about how you get to grad school. It's kind of just something a lot of people happen into one day, and they go, "Wow, okay, I'm here." That's really <laughs> how it ends up. You don't you don't realize that you're you're about to start grad school, and then you start it, and you're like, "Wow, okay, I'm a grad student." But <laughs> so I guess my story started back roughly in about 2012. Um, and at that point, it all started with me, uh, I think I was swimming, I might have been like wakeboarding, something like that in a lake. And um, I, I got a really bad ear infection that day and my, my hearing slowly deteriorated. I, I eventually went uh, pretty much completely deaf out of one ear and then mostly deaf out of the other. And the doctors said, we don't really know what to do. We've tried antibiotics, they're not helping. So just start learning sign language. And then hopefully you can learn it while you can still hear. And then once you're deaf, you can use sign language. And I was like, well, okay, I've been wanting to learn sign language anyways. So not the best circumstances, but I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. So I did. And I got really interested in the deaf community. And I got um, a lot of deaf friends and I, I really uh, enjoyed it. And at that time, I was also taking a psych class. This is my, I think, first year of community college. And my professor in that class said that they were looking for volunteers to work in a psych lab. And I didn't know anything about science at that time. I I really didn't even like science back then. I I thought it was a really stupid subject. Well, I'll never use this in my life. Why would I want to study science? But she said that there was a big uh, American Sign Language part of it and that they were teaching, uh, well, the study is done back in the 80s, but they were teaching chimpanzees sign language and then seeing how much that information they could retain and then how much that information they could like pass on to their offspring. They would teach their their children and stuff. Um, And so I, I did that for a while. I became interested in it, but it really wasn't where I saw my career going. 
So once I graduated from community college, um, I started um, at another lab that was really more computational based because I um, at that point I had some background in computer science. Uh, I had taken some intro computer science classes, and I, I wasn't sure if computer science was all was what I wanted to do either because again, science wasn't really my forte. Kind of hated it, <laughs> but then I was like, well. You know, marine biology, that's that's always been something that's interested me. So I said, okay, I'll go ahead and go to the marine biology lab. And so I started the marine biology lab, and I thought that was really interesting, uh, way more interesting science than um, – or it was a way more interesting topic than I, I thought you could have in science, let's say. And um, I liked, liked the psychology stuff beforehand, but again, it really wasn't where I thought I would be going. So I worked in the marine biology as a computational scientist for a little while. Um, and mostly I did some, some wet lab stuff by wet lab. I mean, we went out and took pictures of seals cause that was literally the whole lab is oh, sounds, <laughs> we were looking at seal research. populations and then <laughs> how they impacted salmon populations. So we took pictures of seals and we got a document. Yeah. We saw, <laughs> we saw George on this day at this time. George. And then we saw him 10 minutes later at this point. And did you identify the seals social networks? Like, no, I, I wish oh, okay. there, well, okay. I guess we found one couple that we think were in love, but we don't. We weren't experts on animal <laughs> psychology at all. Maybe our maybe our PI was, but we sure weren't. But they kept coming up out of the water and kissing each other on Aww. the on the mouth, and they'd Aww. go back down. So we're like, okay, they must be in a relationship. So that's that's like, about as smart as hey, we were back then. You Who knows? Mess with these researchers. <laughs> yeah, or that that yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I, I did that for a while and. I started getting more interested in molecular biology as I took more and more science classes. And the um, I don't want to say science is all about money because it's definitely not. And that's definitely not what led me to want to study molecular biology. But the job prospects for marine biology wasn't exactly as great as I was thinking they were be would be or hoping they would be. Now, I'm not saying this to discourage anyone who wants to go into marine biology. If you're passionate about it, great. Uh, but just make sure to look into stuff before you go too far. Um, but yeah, that's it was something I really enjoyed, but it wasn't really um, what I what I wanted at that point anymore. So I went into molecular biology and I started studying cells at that point in a molecular biology lab, and we're studying um, the molecular mechanism of how macrophages differentiate into. Um, more specific cells or how cells differentiate into macrophages. And then um, I did that till I graduated undergrad. And then I showed up here fully expecting I'd be studying deafness because I still wanted to go back to that route. Um, back, you know, 2012 really changed my life with deafness. I really wanted to help the deaf community and help people. At that point, I was more interested and I still am interested in helping elderly people who have developed deafness mm -hmm. over time because it's very difficult for people to develop or to uh, learn sign language at that age. Once they're completely deaf, hearing aids can only do so much. They're really annoying. And so I would really like to understand how it, um, how to prevent it developing so much in, in elderly people. Um, so I was planning on studying that here. And then um, that didn't uh, work out for one reason or another. And so I ended up studying the microbiome using my previous knowledge about computational biology and computer science. So really everything's kind of led from one thing to another. And I'm very thankful and fortunate for where I've, where I've ended up. And I really enjoy the computational part. But that being said, I would like to study 
um, deafness later on <laughs> from a computational perspective. Yeah, so it sounds like you've had a, a little bit of a nonlinear journey through multiple different science disciplines and, and psych disciplines to kind of mm-hmm. end up where you are now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm adding a new part to the show here, which is to ask uh, one of the one of the questions I would like to ask is what is your favorite thing about your research or grad school or, you know, your your work and what is your least favorite? Okay, sure. So by far, my favorite thing is being able to um, program, as weird as that oh, sounds, yeah. <laughs> I love I love programming, but I don't like someone telling me how to do it. So people like most biologists don't have a very strong background in programming. They're mostly you know wet lab biologists, and I don't have as strong background in wet lab biology, but I do have a strong background in programming, or a relatively strong one now. And so it is great people thinking, wow, he must know so much. He must be so great at it. But really, it's just a bunch of very simple concepts that look <laughs> look very complex to other people. But it's all just solving one giant, giant riddle and one giant game in the end. So I really like doing that without someone saying, oh, no, your code needs to run this fast and it needs to have these certain parameters and stuff like that. I didn't like that part of being a computer science student. So it's it's really nice to be able to write my own code and people to actually, you know, congratulate me without trying to tell me how bad my code is. <laughs> and, I, and believe me, it's it's not the greatest code, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that you can look at it and go, oh, wow, you must be the smartest person in the world. But it runs, it does what it needs to do in a timely manner. And I think that's the most important part. <laughs> um, so I guess the least, my least favorite part about it, though, um, all the meetings. The meetings oh. are, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, yeah. my, that's probably true of a lot of jobs, but especially with with computational biology and probably just grad school in general um you go i probably spend more time in meetings than i do actually doing my grad school work it's all about talking about your results talking or getting ideas for um, your next experiments you can do and real you know relaying ideas and then getting more information from other people and it's it's a lot of information it's it's obviously really important to have meetings but man, it gets, it gets tiring. Cause sometimes you have meetings or at least I do for six, seven hours at a time. And I'm like, man, I just want to go on a walk or you know, have a small break or something. But the meetings are definitely the, the most stressful part for me. <laughs> yeah. I use a Google calendar for, to organize my entire life, but it gives you, or at least recently started giving me an estimate of how many hours I spend in meetings per week. <laughs> it's like this week you have eight hours worth of meetings over the week. And I'm like, I don't want to know this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, yeah, I guess the, the part that, or the, the time that I spend away from wet lab, since I'm not a wet lab person, it's all taken up by, by meetings instead. (laughs) So if you, if computational biology does sound really interesting to you, keep in mind that, you're going to have to spend a lot of time understanding the wet lab work because you can't just say, oh, well, I just got this data and I just analyzed it because they told me to. You still have to understand how all that was done. And so when you publish your paper, you can answer those questions that people have about it. So I'm I'm always learning more and more about the wet lab process. Um, and a lot of that learning comes from the meetings itself. So just because you don't have to be in lab, you're almost always at a computer in meetings. <laughs> well, that kind of answers our next question a little bit which was what is something you wish everyone knew about computational biology oh yeah yeah i guess it does yeah that's that's uh um that's one very very strong thing 
Um, and the the other one though is that it's not it's and I think I've, I mentioned this earlier. I just want to be clear about what computational biology is though. It's you're not just sitting at a computer and writing programs. That's a very big part of it. But I'm also um, I'm also doing a lot of IT stuff. So if things go wrong on the servers, you have some people higher up in the university that can help you with them. But really, the servers are your responsibility if if um, you're using them a lot in your lab. And like our lab owns our own servers on um, the CQLS mm. um, servers, like servers within servers, I guess. Uh, and so I, I have to be responsible for those. So I'm not just writing programs. I'm writing programs. I'm in meetings. I'm analyzing data. I'm on the server trying to understand um, Unix slash Linux. Uh, I knew some of that from undergrad, but I'm always learning more stuff about that. So being a computational biologist is not just one field. It's a very broad idea. I'd say I'm part systems biologist, part microbiologist, part IT specialist, part network biologist, and the list, the list really goes on. It's You really have to be um, able to think about a lot of different things at once and, and understand how these things come together so that you can advance your field and really um, you know, progress your career. Yeah, I feel like with computational biology, it's almost like you're... In biology terms, you're becoming more of a generalist than a specialist. Mm -hmm. So it's like you have to know like a bit about all these things. And like, yeah, maybe you're not, as you admitted, like the best, most perfect programmer. Or maybe you're not like know everything there is to know about wet labs. And that's why you're in meetings a lot. But you know enough about all these things to bring them together in like a really powerful way. So it's, how's that phrase go? Like a... A master. Jack of all trades, master yeah. of none. Yeah, jack of all <laughs> trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Oh, I haven't heard that. Part <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard that it. either. I like that though. <laughs> okay. But okay. yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And then when it comes to the science, like we call ourselves, um, well, it depends on who you talk to, but really, I guess it would all be wrapped up in the idea of systems biology: how one system interacts with another system to interact with another system to then cause some sort of change. So you have to understand all these individual systems themselves. You have to understand genetics, immunology, microbiology. All these things are happening at once, and you have to know about all those to understand your network. And then you also have to understand network biology on top of that. And then you can put all those together and then get some sort of idea of what's actually happening in this system that you're studying. So it's all it's all really interesting. And if, if you like trying to solve puzzles and working with a lot of number and statistics, um, then, yeah, I, I would highly suggest it for anyone who's who's thinking about it. And don't don't think that, oh, I am a marine biologist or, oh, I'm a um, I'm a botany major. I can't actually do this stuff. Majors or all sorts of different kinds of um, disciplines use this. So, I mean, you can have, like we talked about earlier, networks of many different things. So you could have um, gene interaction networks in plants or in fish or, um, you know, name whatever you want. A network can be part of that. So don't limit yourself and go, man, that sounds really cool, but I just can't do that. I just don't know how to. Like, that's absolutely not it. Um, that's... I would say one of my probably my biggest piece of advice is uh, like believe you can and you're halfway there. I think that's um, what. Okay, I have this this poster hanging up in my room 
that that says believe you can you're halfway there and it says that theodore roosevelt originally said that i have no idea if that was true i got this thing on clearance at like (laughs) tj maxx for like five bucks so it could or could not be true that he said it but i think it's really important to to always keep in mind is in that you are yourself or you are your biggest critic um if you think that you can't do something, then you can't do it because you've already put yourself at a severe disadvantage. But if you think that you can do it, then you absolutely can do it. And it's just putting one foot in front of the other. It's not going to be necessarily easy, but you can definitely get there. If you want to go to grad school, and but you're going, man, I'm, I don't know enough about this subject. Nobody knew enough about that subject when they, when they first started. They only know about it because they took that time to, to work for it. Yeah, and I think I think that's very true for learning programming, especially as a person who started out as a biologist um, and has kind of picked up programming in grad in grad school. I think a lot of it intimidated me a lot at first. And I was like, oh, this is so hard. I'm never going to be able to do it. But like anything else, it's a skill that can be learned. Um, and, and you just kind of have to put in put in the work and the effort and, and find people who know what they're doing. So you can ask them a lot of stupid questions. Um, and they say, I, Grace, I told you this last week already, but okay, let's go over it again. <laughs> oh, I've had lots of those conversations, <laughs> people telling me that, not me telling other people that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to hear, but it, it's okay. It's part That's of the learning learn. process. That's yeah. You learn. yeah. We just have them explain it to you in terms of spaghetti. <laughs> there <Yes>. you go. <laughs> All my metaphors. Just always bring now. a plate of spaghetti with me to lab and just slap <laughs> it down on the desk and be like, all right, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> all right well you already gave us your advice unless you have another piece uh, no i think i that think that's it. that's my biggest one that i really want people to, to learn about or yeah. to hear about yeah cool then the only thing that's left is what song did you want us to <laughs> Jeez, i wish i knew how to on. pronounce it but <laughs> i believe it's called hey yeah 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 something something <laughs> along those lines um could you remind me who? Yes, purveyors of internet culture may recognize this <laughs> as the uh, remix of the song "What's Up" by Four Non Blondes, overlaid over a video of of He Man. There you go. Um, so, yeah. reading the title phonetically, it looks like it's "Hey yeah 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 yeah." <laughs> so that's the name of it. And the remix is by Slack Circus. So, with that, Nolan, thank you very much for joining us on Inspiration Dissemination tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. This yeah. was great. Thank you so much. Tune in next week. Same time, same place. Different guest. Different guest. Different host. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>